What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Ishmael Salhi, co-founder of Wild Grain, the first Bake from Frozen subscription food service for artisanal breads, pastries, and pastas. In this episode, we'll chat about the current state of the over-commercialized American baked goods market, how Wild Grain bootstrapped itself to 44,000 paying subscribers, and its unique business model that taps into underutilized capacity at local bakeries. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. All right, Ismail, it's awesome to have you here. I'd love for you to just like start, give us your background, um, kind of your entrepreneurial background in tech, your PhD, and then how you came up with this idea for wild grain with your wife. Cool. Um, yes, I'm Ishmael. I'm a PhD in computer science, very much a tech guy as per the looks. Uh, and I studied computer science for most of my life. I was in tech for most of my life until 2020, uh, where I moved into food on e-commerce. But uh, after my computer science PhD, I worked for a technology transfer office where I was funding startups and paying for patents for various labs in various universities in France, where I lived for 10 years. And that's where my love for bread and carbs came <laughs> from. Um, and then came to the US, to Boston, to launch my own hardware tech company, very different space. Scaled it, raised some money, uh, built a product, got it to market, got customers. And then long story short, COVID killed it, sort of, after many pivots and uh, blood, sweat and tears, as they say. What, what was the company? Uh, the company was called Click. It was a music player for the digital oh. age. It was uh, very different. So it was a way to materialize music from the streaming platforms, podcasts, YouTube into mm -hmm. physical objects you can gift. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, for example, if I wanted to give your podcast to people, I could share a link, but a stronger way to do it would be to give someone mm -hmm. a physical thing they can take home and actually Interesting. Uh, use their phone to access it. So we did okay. that, raised money from Bose Ventures here in Boston mm. and worked on it with my wife, who is an industrial designer. And that's how we got the bug. Okay, so now COVID hits, you're moving on your, to the next thing. And then you come up with this idea for Wild Grain. What was kind of the, the aha moment, the light bulb that went off? Yeah, it was interesting. It was a mix between, I, I talked to uh, some entrepreneurs or one wannabe entrepreneurs who want to go into entrepreneurship and don't have an idea. And it was kind of a mix between the classic aha moment, light bulb thing and a long, longer reflection. So I always, after my previous business, I was kind of traumatized by the VC um, culture <laughs> of launching startups because we did everything they asked us to do. And they told us, if you do this and you have these results, we'll give you more money. Three years passed by, we went, we did everything. And they were like, oh, we moved on to something else. Uh, we're no longer right. investing in hardware. And so I got traumatized by that a little bit. And I was very curious uh, about subscription boxes because uh, a friend of ours here 
has his own subscription boxes and scaled it without really much capital and without relying on VCs. So I was like, oh, this is an interesting business model. So my mind opened up to think about subscription boxes. And then one time we were walking on a hike with a friend and we were kind of bouncing ideas about subscription boxes. And my wife, who is German and who was in Germany at the time, sent me a picture of a loaf she just baked with her friend, uh, a sourdough loaf. And that was the aha moment. We looked at each other and was like, oh, this is, this is it. This is what we should try. And at the time, my wife was also pregnant with our first son. And we were looking around for baked goods that were not really um, rich in preservatives and salt and sugar. And, and we started playing with this. This was 2019. It was pretty even our company shutting down. It was just uh, not even a side hustle. It was just an idea that we were playing with. So that was the true genesis. The classic uh, foundation for all good ideas. Very cool. So let's let's take a step back and look at like the current bakery landscape in the U.S. as unsophisticated and commercialized as it is. How big is that market if we count like just kind of anything sold on the shelves of grocery stores plus in the independent market? You know, maybe how big by volume number of bakeries and then what are we losing here versus compared to other parts of the world that you've lived in, um, like France, when it comes to this highly commercialized ultra processed product that's basically just sitting on the shelves and you know yeah. getting stale <laughs> yeah so on the market size it's huge 50 percent of americans eat carbs daily uh and we can mm -hmm. actually we don't think about it but then everybody starts kind of make taking score and realize oh at least today you had a bagel or you had an english muffin or you had bread with your for lunch or you had pasta or you had. So um, it's a huge part and we look at it as the carbs market, but if you look specifically at the bakery market, I think there's something close to 80,000 bakeries in the US and the market is in close to $90 billion, something like that. And then if you look at the quality of what's out there, it's actually surprisingly uh, diverse. You'll find obviously the the wonder breads out there and uh, very processed, very quick, fast, cheap um, breads. And then you can find also very high quality artisan breads. I'm thinking of Tartine in San Francisco and all sorts of very good bagel makers in New York. And, you know, there is very high quality bread products. Um, the problem that I kind of stumbled upon is not really the quality or the artisanship or the craftsmanship. It was really the freshness compared to Europe. I don't know it's, if it's cultural or if it's the industry that's super subsidized in Europe. I really couldn't pinpoint the reason. But in Paris, you could literally walk anywhere and stop and look around. You'll find a bakery. Chances are you walk in, give two euros and get an amazing baguette that's warm out of the oven. And that experience was lacking in the U.S. Nobody I know, everybody I know had access to good bread, but nobody had access to good, warm, fresh out of the oven bread on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And so that was kind of the first moment I was like, oh, I bet Americans would love to have that experience. And then there is obviously the health stuff and how flowers are different in Europe and how 
it's not even just about the ingredients, it's about the process. We, after digging a little bit, we found that a lot of the grocery stores in the U.S. have sourdough bread, but it's flavored, not made on the, like, we're using the slow fermented yeah. uh, method. And so to give you an example, I think a, something like a Wonder Bread takes 20 minutes from start to finish to make. Uh, our breads take 25 hours from start to finish. And you can see that slow fermentation has all sorts of benefits. It pre-digests the gluten, so you have less gluten in the bread, and so you're, it's easier on your belly, basically. It's richer in nutrients and prebiotics, and uh, it's lower, it creates lower sugar spikes uh, when you eat it compared to more whiter breads. And so it's over, and there's no shelf stabilizers in most of these artisan things. And so we, we found that, and that was like the, post the aha moment, we should do this. After some research, we were like, okay, this makes sense. There is a play here because you can make a better product and offer it to people. And I bet with the current state of society, they will be receptive to it. Fascinating talking about kind of the high turnover nature of the boulangeries in France and kind of the ritual there. I, I don't, I'm racking my brain as well to try to figure it out. If I had to guess, I would say that whatever co coffee culture is to to Americans, boulangeries are to Europeans, right? And yeah. that ritual of having that morning pastry to like start your day is something that's just so culturally ingrained. And here in the U.S., because of the quality, like you mentioned, I I think there's a negative association with because that they're an indulgence, that they're a treat, that there's something we should have frequently, infrequently, because, uh, you know, and this is evidenced by things like the cupcake gifting craze, right? Like you look at crumble in the US, right? And I was actually just in, in Spain last month and I saw someone, there was someone trying to literally knock it off and call it New York City cupcakes, even though they just opened in New York. That's but funny. like the point is like, the norm is like not, like that's like a daily thing there and here it's considered like a treat, right? It's a gift. I'm coming over and I'm giving you something that's like indulgent. It's it's not considered like ritualistic or like healthy, like coffee, which is considered like, oh, I'm being productive, I'm working. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's definitely that. There's also the lunch, I think, a baguette with a, mm. some sort of like, you know, tuna or ham or butter and you know jambon beurre which is ham and yeah. butter and baguette is the national sandwich of france they love it yeah they think it's the best sandwich you can have in the simplest one and i think they in france i yeah i remember like that was my lunch maybe three three days a week is just baguette with something in it and a pastry at the end of the meal wow and here it's not <laughs> something that you you find maybe a bun me yeah. here and there but not really. In my in my neighborhood of Hipster Silver Lake in LA, we have, you know, two very good bakeries, Clark Street and, and Bub and Grandma's that do wholesale and retail and but it's definitely not mainstream and you not you can't go into a grocery store and get like a amazing I'm not even going to try to pronounce ham on bear, uh, sandwich, but okay, I just did. But uh, <laughs> you can't get that there. You can't get that at, you know, your Whole Foods or whatever grocery store you're going to. Yeah. But let's dive into Wild Grain. Like, give us the pitch uh, of the box subscription. How much does it cost? What am I getting? And then maybe talk about also like the variety of products that you're currently selling. 
Yeah, so Wild Grain is the first big frozen subscription box for bread, pasta, and pastries. Uh, we deliver par-baked, ready-to-bake um, breads, sourdough breads uh, that are artisanal, not automated at all, made by hands. All our products are touched by human beings and, and prepped for you to bake them at home and finalize them at home in less than 25 minutes. It costs uh, $69 for the first plan, which is the bread box. And then there are different plans if you want just pastries or a mix. Uh, and it comes with uh, different styles of you know, large loaves. So our most popular is the plain sourdough. Uh, we have seven grain, harvest loaves, all sorts of different loaves, but also rolls, uh, brioche rolls, muffins, bagels. Uh, we launched pizza recently, which is very popular. Uh, and then we have fresh pasta. And then our most popular item ever is the croissants. Because if you sign up for Wild Grain, you get free croissants for the life of your subscription. And so that's, mm. <laughs> and even to me, is the best product we sell. Sounds very similar to the free bacon from ButcherBox. <laughs> yeah, we we are close to them. And so they're in Boston. And yeah. <laughs> we applied their playbook in some cases yeah. to our own uh, Smart. to our own box. So, so if I interpret this correctly, you have a certain number of credits essentially for the 60, for these different levels of the boxes that you can allocate towards, you know, these different categories. Like let's say this week I want more to index heavily on pasta versus like, you know, sourdough bread. Um, I can just kind of shift my yeah, subscription there's no credit. That. Uh, you just, there's a flat fee and then you can... Uh, pick whatever you want. We right. limit, I think, the number of pastries to four, but that's it because they're very expensive to make. Um, but you can you can fill your box with just pasta if you're in a pasta Got mood it. that week. Um, and then we have seasonal add-ons that we can put in the in the regular pick uh, mm -hmm. that you can add on top to your order. So we have you know in blueberry season we have blueberry muffins and blueberry. Uh, biscuits and blueberry pie bites and things like that. And uh, in the fall, we'll have pumpkin stuff. And then on Valentine's, we have macarons and uh, chocolate cake and things like that. Super fun. Uh, love that. L let's talk. So this idea of par-baked frozen, super fascinating. I feel like it's underappreciated and there's probably mixed uh, reactions uh, when you talk to people about this. So I guess like I, I'm pretty sure that there, this already exists in food service. And I've also heard pitches from, you know, bakeries that wanted to scale to little kiosks without having a full, you know, like a whole bakering, baking commissary, you know, nearby or like they wanted a hub and spoke it. And this is the best way to to do that. But you can also preserve uh, the quality. So and I've actually done this myself. I've bought frozen croissants from my local bakery and made them at home and they were phenomenal. They were almost pretty much identical to the experience I've had, you know, getting it fresh in the store. So I guess just talk to us about that market and how it's being used today, the perception and like consumers receptivity to that, like, and the education yeah. required. I think I, I'll talk about the perception first. I think the perception is worse from the industry than from the consumer. I think consumers are open-minded about it. Uh, I Especially if it serves a purpose, it's not just to drive costs down and to improve your production, but really to our pitch to customers is, hey, frozen is better because you just eat it warm instead of 
we bake it, we send it to you, and then it stale, starts getting stale before it gets to your door. Uh, or at the bakery, same thing, when you walk in, the loaf has been sitting for an hour or two already. And so that's there on the perception side. I think a lot of the industry has a bad perception because a lot of it was, a lot of the bake, uh, the big commercial bakeries were using frozen to drive costs down and not really to preserve the quality and try to sell better bread. And so I think we're among the first ones who tried to this for really artisanal, high quality bread. And so we, I remember when we started Wild Grain, the reason why we did all of this, so there's two accidents when we started. The, the first idea was to send raw dough frozen mm. to people. And then it worked, um, but people didn't know how to shape the loaf. And so the loaves were looking flat. They were delicious, but they didn't look good. And we, <laughs> one time we made so much bread, I remember that, because it takes you the same amount of time to make one loaf or 10 loaves, because it's a lot of kneading and folding and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we, we had the idea of just baking them to 75% of their time and just freezing them and then reheating them. And we did that and we gave away, because we made so many, we gave away a few to friends and they were like, this is amazing. This is much better than the raw dough you were testing. And that's when we stumbled upon it. And then we started pitching, uh, I guess, fast forward, we started selling our own bread. We were making our own in our own commercial kitchen. And then COVID was happening. We couldn't deal with the volume of orders we were getting and we couldn't hire anyone to come into the kitchen. And so we started reaching out to bakers who lost a lot of business at the time because they were doing food service for restaurants and for hotels. And some of them were offended by the idea that <laughs> we, sh- they can, we are asking them to do frozen. And a few of them actually took a chance on us. And now we became one of their biggest buyer, basically, and we have a strong relationship with them and became part of our process. And on the customer side, you can read our 14,000 five-star reviews. People absolutely love the par-baked nature of all our products because it makes it more convenient and more delicious for them. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge proponent of Frozen. Um, but I think I think that's a nice segue. Let's talk about the supply side, which I think is, pro- what for me, as, as somebody who studies the food industry and writes about it and interviews people like yourself, this is like a huge differentiator the fact that you're able to take this what i feel like is underutilized capacity at these various bakeries and you know light that supply online and deliver uh a little bit closer than you know something uh, more centralized so let's talk about your, your distribution centers and like the hub and spoke model uh how many bakeries you're currently working with and like how you're coming to these various bakeries and and convincing them beyond the par bake thing, but from an economic standpoint, like what is the real advantage to working with you? Yeah, so I'll start with with the onboarding, and it started with just one bakery, the first one we reached out to because my wife and I were overwhelmed. We weren't sleeping. We had a newborn, and we couldn't churn enough bread for the customers, and. Uh, it was too hard. And so we, I remember reaching out to them and then meeting them and, uh, we told them, Hey, it's a tweak in your production process. Obviously they have a production process that's pretty streamlined. And also it's a different, you know, it's different packaging. It's different baking method. Uh, you're using their ovens in different ways. You're retraining their staff. So there is a little bit of an, an investment on their end and 
obviously we have other criteria uh, that are not just tied to frozen, but to just the ingredients that we do. We're stricter than a supermarket or a grocery chain uh, on the ingredients that you can use on all sorts of things that make the loaf and the aesthetics and, you know, the scoring, everything. We care about a lot of these things. So we went to the first one and spent probably like three weeks before we launched our first loaf, which was pretty much one off their shelf because it was a plain sourdough that we really liked. We tweaked it with them. Uh, we invested in their packaging machine with them because they weren't, you know, we packed frozen bread differently than you pack a loaf at this grocery store. And uh, so we helped them streamline that first production and they realized very quickly that it's serving them uh, a huge favor because they can, because we have a frozen model, they're not delivering our bread at early in the morning to sell it during the day. They can produce it whenever it's, they have downtime in their staff um, and freeze it and send it to our distribution center. And so we scaled that model pretty well. At first we thought it would be tricky because we had to find the balance between a bakery that's artisanal enough, but also that can scale with us. And this one was a great partner. It's in Massachusetts. And then we kind of took that relationship and tried to build an onboarding process that is fair to the bakery, fair to us, and makes basically the, the relationship go well. And we started doing that over and over with pastry makers, with pasta makers. And it worked out great. The People are happy to support small batch bakeries. The bakeries love it because their uh, production is more controlled and more optimized. We love it because we're getting the products exactly where we want it to be very quickly without really um, having to train and hire a lot of people to in every location we're selling. And it became a sort of like very positive method where everybody wins, the customer wins, the vendor, the bakery is winning and we are winning too. And we scaled it and now we have five distribution centers across the country. Uh, and around each one, there is a bunch of bakeries, pasta makers and pastry makers uh, that provide all our products to them. And our product team takes care of, you know, onboarding, quality control, uh, quality process, hygiene, ev everything you can think of before our first loaf of bread is ordered from them. I can't stop thinking about Mr. Beast Burger and how, like, you know, obviously yeah, this is the, the, the other end of the spectrum, but like, it's fascinating to think about, you know, this is un unlocking you know, excess capacity at bakeries in the same way that this was, do you know, Mr. Beast was like doing it obviously haphazardly <laughs> for restaurants during COVID. <laughs> yeah, I think if you, if you care about products as much as we do, you can't have yeah. these problems. <laughs> and we, again, we're not YouTubers, we're not doing other things. Our main right. core business is selling bread. His core business is not selling burgers. And so I think this this notion of ghost kitchen or cloud kitchens is kind of, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I understand it. Coming from tech, it's like the perfect dream of it. And that's right. why it got so much funding from VCs all the time, because right. it looks like a, a, you know, a kitchen as a service, but right. kitchens are not machine like you know it's not a AWS. server farm yeah. it's not AWS and that's how they pitch it which is very interesting cuz AWS is a machine somewhere mm -hmm. and the capex of that machine is just 
on the balance sheet of Amazon, but a bakery is human beings who are, you could, my, my, my favorite thing in this job is to visit the bakeries and see the people who work there. They don't go there because they don't work there because it's, you know, Amazon, they work there because they're passionate about baking and bakers are very different. It's, you know, you, you're in touch with restaurants and bakeries and it's not, it's a passion driven job and it's not really, people don't, don't go become a baker for, um, <laughs> the same way someone would go to Amazon, I would say, with the same mindset. <laughs> Absolutely not. But so how do you control, like, so we think about each bakery, there's different microbes, right? And the, how you're, I'm assuming that you sent them a starter to stand, you know, or you've standardized some sort of. So you, the starter you, is kind of, um, uh, it's not really what people think. It doesn't have as much of an influence on the final product as people think. I think it's a, a romanticized <laughs> thing um, because when I talk to scientists, they, you know, there's this famous guy at Microsoft who went to ancient to Egypt to get ancient, the most ancient sourdough starter that ever existed, because, you know, ancient Egypt were making sourdough bread back then. And uh, by the way, I joke that we sell the oldest product out there um, at sourdough bread. And he used that starter to make new bread. But the truth is the the bacteria that's on the starter is mostly from your hands, from the air, from mm -hmm. the environment that's around the starter. And that's what composes most of the starter or uh, probably 99.99% of it. I see. And so if you take a starter here in SF or in LA, the same starter or in Boston or, and expose it to different people, to different environments, mm -hmm. it's going to do differently. And the bacterial composition mm -hmm. of it is going to be different anyway. And so to answer your question, no, we don't send different starters <laughs> that each bakery has their own and each bakery is very proud of their own starter. Some of it has, is 30 years old. Some of it is uh, more older than that, which is very funny, but it doesn't really impact the bread. What it really does is the slow fermentation and letting the dough ferment uh, right. using wild grease, wild yeast, that's the name of wild grain uh, for days for a day or sometimes two and then baking it that's that's really what makes a, a really good sourdough loaf so it just comes down to the sops making sure that the times are right the temps are right that the process is down pat makes a lot of sense and so what do you so it's really interesting because you have this you have wild grain as this umbrella brand you have lots of artisanal pasta makers maybe pizza baker, you know, pizza makers and all these little shops that you're essentially aggregating and then shipping to your own kind of middle mile distribution centers, let's see, say. And then there's also some products that you could be putting in the boxes um, across all those five regions yourself. So is there, are there any products that you're procuring directly and then shipping out to the DCs and then marrying with those different art artisans? Yeah, we're working, for example, with a slow churn, slow, um, slowly made French butter. Uh, and we're working with this dairy farm that was making butter since uh, more than a century, more than a century. And they know how to make French butter. And so we're working with them to bring that butter to the U.S. and uh, bring the quality of like a 
very high quality butter to our customers. Um, we're working on uh, uh, macaroons as well that are very, very high quality that we're sending straight to the, the, the FCs, the fulfillment centers. But yeah, most of but most of the production that we do comes from bakeries, uh, regional bakeries to the to the distribution centers. Got it. Yeah, I feel like French cultured butter, however you want to describe it, is super expensive. Uh, you know, I see the, the the gold wrap. I don't even know the name of that brand, but it's literally gold. <laughs> yeah, I think you're mentioning Berdizini, which is yes. the the yeah the holy grail of french butter that's used in every five-star restaurant and <laughs> it is the best um okay so so you mentioned some other categories you want to get into talk to us about your path to getting to 150 million dollars in you know run rate and then maybe talk about whatever you're comfortable sharing as far as your current metrics yeah so the way we um, we think about growing a subscription to 150 million, and this is our ambition. It doesn't mean it's possible, but this is what we want to do: is to build a, basically a, a stop shop for all your baked goods. Um, and we want to be America's online bakery. And the idea is, if you need baked goods in any way or carbs at all, uh, you can come to Wild Grain and get the best ones out there made by the best artisans in the US. Uh, and for us to do that, uh, it requires us to build a product catalog that's expensive enough to appeal to a lot of people. And that goes through our core product, which is the plain sourdough and uh, all the variations on the sourdough line. And then uh, the pastries, we work, we have a line of puff pastry with croissants, chocolate croissant, chocolate avalanche. And then we have pies, so we have the pie bites, the galettes, uh, the turnovers. We have biscuit dough. So think of every dough you can imagine. We have products in that uh, particular dough. Uh, so biscuit dough, we have blueberry biscuit, Parmesan herb biscuits, all sorts of different biscuits for you. And then uh, we're adding slowly categories to each one of these. So we just talked about pizza. We launched our first margarita pizza made with organic flowers and uh, organic mozzarella and tomatoes. We just launched, we're about to launch a veggie pizza from the same people that is amazing. Uh, we're doing, and so we're expanding all these categories one by one for the general public. And that's our first goal to kind of build that catalog. And then after that, we think we should go after um, and we just launched actually our vegan box for, and our kind of pitch to every audience is, hey, we'll bring you the best out there. Uh, we'll, we'll try them, we'll remove everything you don't want from them and we'll ship them to you so that you can eat the best version of them in less than 25 minutes. And so we're doing the vegan alternative and we're gonna try to do the same thing for each category and build an amazing product offering for vegans. and. And next year, we're going to focus on gluten-free as well. And so that's that's the path. And yeah, and we think from what we've learned recently, we think it's possible. Right now, we're serving more than 44,000 people in the U.S. Um, and yeah, we're pretty pumped from the reaction. We have more than, I think, 14,000 five-star reviews uh, from these members 
telling how much they love the box and a very significant amount of them is a member for more than a year, which is uh, heartwarming for all our bakers, for us, for uh, my wife, Johanna, who is the head of product, who basically gets every single product uh, to the best of it can be before it, it hits our distribution centers. I love that your head of product is a is a baker and not a PM that's messing around with uh, yeah, Atlassian no. and Jira and Trello. <laughs> yeah, we're we're a very culturally we're a very I part of what I said very early in the company we're an e-commerce company and we're more in the commerce side than the e side. Yeah, I think a lot of tech people come to food and push too much the uh, tech and you, you'll hear it a lot and I hear it on your podcast. A lot of people come <laughs> and talk about AI and talk about the power of curation and all of this. And I think there is, which is useful and you can, we see it as, uh, as, as things to improve and optimization things. But I think the core thing for food, is such a, an important part of being a human being is just the taste and the quality and how people feel when they eat it. And that's why I think uh, that's a lost a lot by yeah. when you see tech entrepreneurs taking over food companies. Yeah. It's such an art and it's such an underappreciated art. And I feel like the tech is easy. The food yeah. part is, is what's the hardest. Exactly. I agree. I totally Especially agree. at scale uh, like you have. So congrats on that 44,000 active members. That's insane. And you did it with only raising three quarters of a million and you haven't taken on any more capital. Yeah, that was part of of the challenge. As I briefly mentioned in the beginning, I was really traumatized by building a company and then going to your team and saying, hey, we ran out of money. Uh, <laughs> and that was built in, in the, like that was always mm -hmm. a possibility. And so when we started Walgreen, we were very adamant about the fact that this has to be our goal was profitability. We, we weren't really happy when we raised. We weren't really happy when we reached big milestones in terms of, you know, vanity metrics, like the number of subscribers and things like that. We all we cared about is building a profitable business so that we can be the masters of our own destiny and not have to make compromises. And we pitched that to our VC at the time, and I remember at the beginning, they were like, yes, yes, of course, well, you're not going to raise again, huh. wink, wink. <laughs> but after a while, I think we convinced them that it was possible. And now they're proponent of our approach. And I think they, they are fully convinced that there is, that's at least one of the good ways of, of starting an e-commerce company, which is very interesting because maybe a year ago, we were kind of an outlier and now everybody in the VC community is saying, oh, profitability matters. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your unit economics and things like that, which is yeah. what was driving us since the very beginning. And it's, actually mm -hmm. the most important metric that I, uh, that is the dearest to me is that we turned into profit in May, 2023. Awesome. Congrats. So how Thanks. does that impact your, your, like your teams, work culture and your growth? So it impacts all of the above pretty, I would say from the outside, pretty negatively. Uh, a lot of the people 
when when you come to an interview at Walgreens, you're going to be surprised that we're going to offer you an under-market salary compared to any e-commerce company out there. Our pitch is, hey, we're not trying to give you $250,000 to lead product and, <laughs> and then fire you when we run out of money. We're trying to give you a sustainable job that you're going to grow into and become, uh, grow into it. And so funnily enough, it, ha- it impacted how we build the team. And so now when I build the team, one of, it's not a criteria, but it's a nice to have is having had a startup experience that wasn't good um, because you need that to understand what you're getting into and the risks of it. And if for me, if someone had a bad startup experience, still want to do startups that tells something that says something about their spirit. Uh, the second thing is uh, willingness to learn. We don't hire people who my wife isn't from food. I'm not from food. Most of our hires, not all of our hires aren't from food but they were all passionate about it. They were all passionate about learning. And so we, while people were hiring, you know, VPs from X e-commerce company that went under, we were just hiring people who were very passionate, very willing to learn. And so thinking about profitability was, we couldn't afford to hire, you know, quote unquote superstars. And then on the growth side, same thing. We we were growing what based on what we could afford. So we were looking at our month one, month two, month three profitability per cohort. So this gets a little bit more in the weeds, but basically we would look at every month, how many members we acquired. And then we look how much we spent to acquire these users and how much the product costs. And then we would want to break even on that cohort as soon as possible. And that defined what we can borrow that defined how much we can spend on growth and we became a CAC led company. So CAC is cost, uh, customer acquisition cost. And we have over the life of the company, we set goals of what it, what we can afford for acquisition cost, And we just spend exactly that and not a single cent more. And that allowed us to grow luckily fast enough because there was a lot of volume coming in. And I think, uh, being launching during COVID helped us with that. But a lot of other companies were doing the opposite. They were acquiring customers with way too much and not breaking even until month seven or month 10 and sometimes never. And so that wasn't our goal. And so profitability drove how we considered how we grew and we grew probably slower than we would have if we had, you know, 10 million in the bank, but that's, that's totally fine. Yeah, you're better off as a result now today, and you're in control of your destiny. Exactly. So, yeah, that's awesome. It's it's rare to hear those stories. I mean, Mailchimp comes to mind as some a very successful yeah. company that um, you know raised very little money, if I recall. So, um, I mean, to his credit, Mike Salguero, the CEO of ButcherBox, was also yeah. a big advisor in this. I would call him and say, Hey, I found this great hire. They're 200,000, but they come from this and this. And he's like, no, you can't afford it. Don't hire them. (laughs) And it was that, that easy. And, or I would call him and say, Hey, CAC is this, if we push it a little bit more, we'll have more volume. And no, that's not how you do it. You need this amount per box. Otherwise you can't really grow this business. And it went into even 
the borrowing and the fees and how much you, you spend. And we, we modeled everything out very deeply so that we make sure that mm. we're growing profitably all the time. And a huge part of it was him because he grew ButcherBox from zero to 600 million in, yeah. without taking external capital. Yeah, phenomenal story as well. So what do you think? I mean, you mentioned a lot there about how companies, you know, were looking at longer payback periods um, on their CAC and uh, obviously raised too much capital and projected crazy amount of growth during COVID that everything would just continue in a hockey stick straight line. Um, but like we've, we, this sector in particular has really seen a reckoning even before COVID, right? Like look at Blue Apron's IPO to basically now transforming itself into an asset light brand. Or, you know, we see, you know, Nestle try to get freshly off of its balance sheet and spin that off. Um, and just a lot of su sudden closures. I can't name all of them. Right. But this sector has been in particular, very difficult, um, to, you know, has just seen only a few successes. So I guess, what do you think was, was were the Achilles heels of those? I think most of them raised too much money and applied the wrong playbook to the wrong industry. I think they applied the yeah. tech playbook to the food industry. It's this kind of the same thing as Uber and it was subsidized meals or trips or whatever you call it. When it's a physical object, it's not software. You know, you can subsidize software because long term, the margins are virtually 100% in some cases. But in food, you still have to or travel or you still have uh, assets that cost money and fixed assets in your balance sheet that you need to take care of. And so having VCs subsidize them for a while to achieve growth works for Twitter uh, or for Facebook or when you're trying, trying to create a social network or a SaaS company, but it right. doesn't work for food. Because remember the moment the VCs stop subsidizing your product, the price goes up and then automatically the audience shrinks because you mm. People who were, I remember, I, I don't know if you do, but remember when an Uber was cheaper than taking the subway? It was, <laughs> it was insane. Everybody was taking Ubers all the time. And then Uber got dried out of all that VC money and the prices of Uber are exactly what they should be now um, because they're thinking about profitability and yeah. less people are taking Ubers. And yeah. I think it's the same for the Blue Aprons and the meal kits in general. It's such a labor intensive to... Right. Uh, production process yeah. uh, and so there's a lot of costs that were just hidden by all those subsidies right. and that doesn't even include CAC investments they were acquiring customers for way too much yeah. and including discounts for I remember I used to get a full week of Blue Apron meals for $20 or $10 and I don't know how they recovered from that ever yeah. and I yeah. think they were projecting too much on the LTV the lifetime value of customers yeah. and and so I, I think most of them did that. And companies like ButcherBox uh, were laser focused on profitability, are doing just fine and actually did great pre, post COVID and during COVID, obviously. Yeah, I just think I, the mar like you said, the marginal cost of delivering, you know, food is not zero, right? The marginal you don't have the same leverage uh, economy and economies yeah. of scale as you do in, in just pure software. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know who I was telling this recently, but we are not just selling bread. We're selling bread delivered to your door 
mm-hmm. ready to put in your freezer. So we're preventing the value proposition that we're giving you is not just healthy bread, but also healthy bread that you don't have to go to the grocery store to get. We save you trips to the to the. We have a lot of customers who, you know, their closest bakery is a Walmart twenty minutes away or thirty minutes away, and. For them, the value of having that box already in the freezer and ready to use for their families is the, the included in the price is not only the bread but also the convenience of getting the bread in in the freezer without yeah. moving from from your door. And there is a cost to that, and you should account for it as yeah. a business. Yeah, the accessibility unlock is uh, I think super unique to what you're doing, and um, yeah, not not everybody is blessed to be living in you know. A hip neighborhood with like two really good bakeries, et cetera. So it makes total sense. So, so I think that's a good segue to this idea of potentially, you know, some at some point in the future, you you guys might want to have some sort of physical presence closer to your customers once you've really built out, you know, your your base of of subscribers. What do you think that looks like in the future? Is it more of a distribution center with a little front of house bakery in the front or what could we potentially see down the line from you guys? Yeah, I'm pretty obsessed with this. Uh, again, I'm trying to think about it. You know, a lot of people open stores or businesses open stores and think about it as a brand play. And, oh, this will help, you know, with um, branding. But we're, we don't think that way, really. We think about performance and profitability. And so I've been obsessing about this idea of how do you get more efficient at getting the box closer to your customer without really taking too many risks. As you know, like opening a retail store requires probably a five to seven year lease. If you make a mistake in that location, it's a money pit. You're just losing money for six, seven years. And uh, I know a lot of companies who did that mistake. And so I've been talking to a lot of different people in the e-commerce space to try to see how you can de-risk some of it to a certain extent. And the theory is great. So we have the advantage of having a subscription and a member base. And we know that, you know, uh, we have high density areas where there's a lot of members that we can serve. And imagine Boston, for example, is a great city for us. And we could open a store downtown Boston and then get it to a mix between, you know, uh, a high-end bakery, but also this is a, a, a sound weird, but at a Domino's. So when you think about it, a Domino's store is more of a fulfillment center and a distribution center than a real store. There's rarely a lot of walk-ins. Most people come to do pickup and they actually built the store and a lot of their economics is they're trying to incentivize you to come pick it up versus get the delivery. And I think that's, and it's designed, if you look at it from a pure like uh, e-commerce nerd, they have a loading dock to bring inventory in. They have all sorts of things to make production easy and, and simple. And then at the same time, you can go and walk in and sit and eat your pizza there if you wanted to. And so I kind of think of a mix between the two for us in the future where you could um, we use that store as a micro fulfillment center, essentially, to deliver all our products to our customers. It will help use less dry ice, use less packaging, get the box quicker to them. But at the same time, uh, it will open up a retail location where people who don't know what grain can walk in and discover our products and try them and walk home with 
with a frozen uh, loaf that they can bake whenever they want. I obsess over this. I lived in Paris for 10 years and in France they have this store called Picard, which is <laughs> a very atypical type of supermarket chain where everything is frozen. And you walk in and the aisles are all these like transparent freezers where you can see what's inside. You can pick whatever you want. And remember living there, it was super convenient. And so I see a mix between that and the Domino's store, if that makes sense at some point in, in the cards for us. And the hard part is how do you de-risk it and test it and give it its best chances without risking to lose too much money on, you know, maintaining a store that doesn't really isn't profitable. And so our my obsession is to open a store that is profitable on day one because you have the volume already of people you're serving through just the distribution and the micro fulfillment piece and then have the the walk-in be in sort of right. the cherry on the top on on, right. on this the concept yeah it's organic customer acquisition exactly yeah in, in in the best case it is in the worst case it's a money pit so when i talk to people right. i in the <laughs> e-commerce space whether it's for clothing food or other areas or restaurants if you pick the wrong location you're crying every day if you pick the right location it's exactly what you're saying. It's virtually not free, but very cheap customer acquisition. Yeah. I, I'm obsessed with the vertical frozen model um, of Picard. I, I just don't understand why it doesn't exist in the US. But then again, it kind of comes back to culture. I think at the end of the day, frozen microwave food is considered unhealthy here. Um, but, you know, clean label stuff like that. It's just, I don't know, it's just so much, again, education for the consumer. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot. And so part of a lot of the conversations I have with uh, with people in the industry is why don't we do retail? Just plain, that's easier. You know, you just be in Whole Foods and sell wild grain at Whole Foods. And one of the biggest pushback I give is wild grain doesn't work if we don't explain why it's better. And we right. need the room to explain that for you. And we need that 30. That's why Facebook and Instagram and online ads work for us because we have that space to explain what you're going to get and why it's better than the grocery store. If you're just walking in the grocery aisle and we're listed among 20 other frozen products and you won't really, we won't really have the opportunity to explain yeah. the entire story between the bakers and the process and the quality and the ingredients yeah. and all of that. And that's, yeah. I think, important. And a store would allow us to do that Absolutely. compared to uh, being a wholesale product yeah. in, in, in Whole Foods. Yeah. Well, Ishmael, this has been super fascinating. We covered a lot of ground. As we get towards the end of the conversation, um, I would love for you to just talk about future predictions for the space that you're in of, you know, D2C food subscriptions. And like, I guess I've always come back to this food away from home, food at home kind of dynamic of, do you see consumers, uh, like with the way that restaurant delivery is and the way dining out is currently priced and the trends there and the rising costs, you know, do you, how do you see that pendulum shifting um, in either direction? And then how do you retrain people to think about slower delivery, right? That doesn't come in 15 or 30 minutes. I, on the last part, I think that's hard. I think it's it's very hard to remove that. I think I my job is to get to a faster delivery for wild grain product, and that's part of why I'm interested in the retail play as well too, because we're closer, so technically we can get it faster. 
I think when people are used to getting things faster, it's hard to go back. Amazon is a great example. Unfortunately, like when you get to next day, anything that's longer than one day seems like very, very slow, annoyingly slow. So I don't know if that trend will go away. On the dining in, dining out part, I think it's an age thing. I think when you're younger, more active, I see it at least in my life that way. Uh, I used to eat out a lot more. Now I eat in a lot more. I like to cook. My wife likes to bake. And so we do a lot of meal prep and meal. Um, uh, we make most of our meals at home. And when, and when we order in more because we have small children. And so I think when you, it depends, when you're in college, I think you're ordering, your behavior towards food changes. And then when you get out of college, it changes again. And then when you're, single it changed it it's a different thing like my wife is going away for 10 days i'm not going to cook anything for 10 days i'm going <laughs> to eat out i'm going to go to restaurants and enjoy eating out my wife will come back with the kids i'm going to start going back to eating in and so that's how i see it a lot i see it a lot also with our members i think i think the there's like this blurry area between i think meal kits are trying to get into the restaurant kind of market share and trying to replace them. I, I struggle to see that part of the, I think going out of the pandemic, I, I think we go to restaurants not just because of the food, it's also because of the atmosphere, it's because you're surrounded by other people eating similar things because you want to be out of the house and change the air a little bit. There's so many reasons to go to a restaurant. So in, in that sense, I think going out of COVID, people will go more to restaurants and more to, you know, it goes with the trend, going more to more concerts, going to more festivals, going to more yeah. restaurants. But on the delivery side, I think the speed is of the essence and it's part of like the new normal is I need it now and I need it quick. And I don't know how you can train people to wait uh, well, a long time. I will say one thing to your credit is that you can make something instant that isn't instant by having it in your freezer so long as it doesn't need to be thawed for 24 hours like meat, right? Like I had to set up reminders to say like, hey, thaw the, you know, hanger steak that's sitting in my freezer and it's currently thawing right now in my fridge, right? Or the buddy's pizza from Gold Belly that's been sitting there. It's like, how do I remember to do that like 12 hours or whatever it is before I need to eat it? Yeah. Versus something I could do fresh from frozen, right? Yeah, we, we put it a lot in our marketing materials that it's ready to uh, from freezer to table in 25 minutes. And that's a huge value prop for a lot of busy people who, you know, oh, I forgot about dinner. What am I going to do? Oh, there's wild grain pasta. I'm going to pop it in. There's the sauce yeah. pouring in. It's ready. Here's the pizza. Here's the bread. I can make, you know, a quick sandwich very quickly. I can make a yeah. breakfast sandwich very quickly compared to... Um, yeah, what you were saying about, like, I had the same thing with, with, I stopped my meat subscription because of that, basically, because the moment I need the meat is usually, oh, it's 5 p.m. I need to go make dinner for the kids. Yeah. Sorry, Mike. The meat is frozen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, so if people want to get started with Wild Grain Consumers, uh, talk to, to tell us where, how we can get started. And then if bakeries or any kind of art, artisans listening to this want to get involved, uh, how can they reach you? Now is your time to plug away. Sweet. Uh, so if you're interested in buying wild grain, visit wildgrain.com. And uh, I think we're running $30 off 
promotion until the end of the summer on your first box and free croissants for life. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's there. And if you're a, an artisan and you're have good, healthy, clean products, um, just reach out to me, uh, at Hey at wildgrain.com and we'll, we'll take it from there. We're happy to talk. All right, this has been really amazing. A lot, a lot to think about here. We covered a lot of ground, so thank you so much, Ishmael. And uh, thank you for can't wait me. to see, can't wait to see how uh, you continue to grow. Thank you, thank you very much. Love the pod. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.